So Money Episode 173, Mr. Money Mustache. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to So Money, headed out for the 4th of July weekend, right? I hope you're having a wonderful time getting ready for the weekend, the holiday, Independence Day, and assuming that some of you might be on the road looking for something good to listen to, I decided to dedicate today to an oldie but a goodie, Mr. Money Mustache. I think he is, to date, the most popular show, the most popular interview I have done to date, um, exceeding Tony Robbins, exceeding Robert Kiyosaki, exceeding Margaret Cho. He is hands down the most popular. And I'm honored to say that I had his wife on earlier uh, this last week, actually. Mrs. Money Mustache, Simi, was on the show. And um, I don't know, maybe I'll get their son on one day as well. I love the family. I love the mustache family. And so Mr. Money Mustache is a replay today from uh, earlier this year when I interviewed him. But it's just uh, just the kind of episode that really puts a smile to your face. Uh, Mr. Money Mustache is a 30-something retiree who now writes about personal finance on his blog. He's got a cultish following. He likes to take two-month-long vacations, and he is somebody that many people aspire to become. And in fact, many of my friends whom you know, many of my friends who know what I do and they're smart, um, they don't necessarily know all the like financial uh, blogs that I read or the financial stories that I'm covering, but they do know Mr. Money Mustache. So he has found his tribe, let me tell you. And I actually met him a couple of years ago when I flew out to interview him in his house in Colorado. He is really down to earth. He's good natured. He's kind of got this badass persona online. And he definitely is a bit of a financial rebel, but he's total sweetheart. And I think that uh, Pete, as his name is in real life, is totally lovable. And it, it shines through this conversation that we have on So Money. Several takeaways from our interview with Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, is one, how he was able to retire at 30. And what are the rules behind that kind of an early retirement? Like that's early retirement on crack. I mean, we talk about like retiring early at 50, 40, 30. How does that work? And um, what are the rules behind his religion, also known as mustachianism? The cultural forces that pressure us to spend beyond our needs. He talks about this. Mrs. Money Mustache also addressed this in her interview with me. And also he talks about the drivers of happiness and why a lot of us have yet to figure out the whole happiness thing. Well, he's found it and he is happy and he spreads that love and happiness on the podcast. Ready, set, go. Here we are. Mr. Money Mustache. Replay. Mr. Money Mustache, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. I'm excited to be one of your early guests. Yes, yes. I have been wanting to get you on the show since the day I thought of this idea. I've known you for a little while now. I interviewed you, maybe it was a couple of years ago. I, I flew out to Colorado to your home to see who is this money mustache guy? 
you are just dynamic, dynamite online. You have a cult following. For those listeners on the show who don't know kind of what you're about and, and your take on things, share a little bit about the Mr. Money Mustache persona, the blog, and the the story. Well, it's actually a lot less exciting than that. I'm not <laughs> Tim Ferriss or even a mini Tim Ferriss. I'm actually just a a family man who used to work as an engineer and I was a little bit interested in optimizing stuff as I went through life. So I didn't buy quite as much as my other engineering colleagues and I invested that surplus money and got married during those years as well. And as it turned out, we had enough to retire just about age 30, just before turning age 31. And that was 10 years ago now and it's still going pretty well. So I started a blog about four years back explaining what I thought was really self-evident. And it turned out everyone else is saying, how did you have enough money? Like I'm still broke, even though I earned more than you did. So that's what has kind of blown up a little bit into the Mr. Money mustache. Uh, I like to call it a cult just because it's an interesting word. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm continually explaining this stuff even to this day. Well, explain it to us. 30 years old, retired. And Folks, I've been to your home. You have a nice home. You have a nice life. You're not living in a shoebox eating ramen. You know, you have a good life that you've designed, you and your wife and your son. And tell us a little bit. I mean, not the whole story because we don't, we only have so much time, but maybe a couple of the strategies that you adopted that you see most people not following. And that's the reason why they don't even get to retire at 65. Yeah. Well, it really, it boils down to spending. Uh, Most people spend a lot more than they can afford while thinking they can afford it. Um, But then at the same time, you need to find a way to have a great life, even if you're spending less. So for example, a lot of people in my kind of income bracket or age range have a couple of brand new cars and they have them financed. It doesn't even occur to them that you could buy a car with money that you actually have. And they do this over decades. They just keep renewing their car supply. Stuff like that can blow a couple hundred thousand dollars over the course of, uh, you know, just 30 years or 40 years of car wasting. Um, and if you optimize all the areas of your life, so you're not wasting quite as much, you can cut your spending down by half or even 75%. And let's just say you're living on half your take-home pay and investing the other half. Your working career is only 17 years, as it turns out. So if you start at age 20, you will be retired or rich enough to retire at age 37. Now, I started at age 21 working seriously in engineering, and uh, I saved more than half. I saved about two-thirds of our take-home pay, my wife and I together. And that worked out to a little under 10 years that we had to work Um, So that's how the 30 years old number came about. Um, And so mainly I explain the spending part on my blog because people, it kind of blows their mind. They think you'd have to live in a potato sack clothing and like mash up leaves from the gutter to make (laughs) your own toilet paper and stuff. And it's not like that at all. It's really like the average middle class family Mm -hmm. and especially higher, slightly higher than middle income. They just blow so much without even realizing it because we pick up these spending habits from our peers and from watching TV and no one even questions stuff, you know, like, man, I got so many more examples, but let's just move on to the next question to make sure I don't uh, (laughs) use up all your time. No, no. I love talking to you. Well, I think a question that is on a lot of people's minds, and actually my husband asked me this yesterday. He was so excited that I was talking to you. He said, why did he come up with the name Mr. Money Mustache? Because you don't even have that big of a mustache. <laughs> hey, what? Yeah, what? Well, it's, uh, you're right. Mr. Money Mustache, I like it. It sounds good. It's kind of uh, 
modeled that model after some of my role models as a kid, like these great math teachers I had and um, Magnum PI and old Western gunslingers and stuff. And, you know, in my credit, I have grown a big mustache in the past, but I found it is way too much grooming and <laughs> I'm not willing to sacrifice my real life. And uh, to be honest, my attractiveness to my own wife in order to look like someone who should be called Mr. Money Mustache. So I do trim it, you know, trim it off occasionally, but I don't shave with shaving creams. At least that's to my credit. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't go for the bald Southern uh, <laughs> Senator look. Good. I'm glad. That's a, that's a good choice. It's a wise choice. Yeah. All right, Mustachio, let's talk about philosophy. This is a question that I like to start off all my guests with because it really, I think, sets the sets the tone for the rest of the, of the podcast is what is your financial philosophy, a money mantra that helps guide your financial decisions? Um, I've kind of simplified it. And nowadays I like to say you just have to understand that your spending has nothing to do with your happiness. It's entirely possible to live a happier life on less money than you're spending right now. And whatever that level of spending is, you can always do better. And that's because the two things aren't really related. It's once you get your food and your shelter taken care of, everything else is just kind of fluffy distractions from what really makes humans happy. What does what really makes you happy? I mean, you need some money, right, to be able to have the bases covered so that you can live comfortably and with peace of mind. And that's happiness. Right. But for and you, in fact, yeah. having more money, mm. having more money is a um, is actually a happiness booster a lot more than spending more money. So having money in the bank or invested or a, a big cushion, which basically frees you from worry, is a lot more powerful than having the latest shoes or handbag or BMW or whatever. So that's one little bit related to your question. No, that's a good point. So just looking at your money grow is more satisfactory than replacing that money with a pair of shoes or a, or a flat screen TV. That's interesting. I guess that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the other thing that's really handy is um, in school, they don't teach us much about what human happiness is, like what really causes it. And it turns out we've done science on this. You know, humans have been studying this and it's uh, not really based on your consumption. It's based on stuff like personal achievement and growth and the feeling of freedom and autonomy. These are two things that are really big parts of human happiness. And if you think about it, neither of those relate to stuff you could buy. Mm -hmm. um, and working hard and feeling like you're a useful person is really, really powerful. So getting yourself through hardships is amazingly, um, amazingly powerful and making you happier. And a lot of our spending is actually targeted these days in the U.S. toward avoiding hardships. So you're actually going to end up less happy by making this big pampered, dumb lifestyle for mm -hmm. yourself. And the other thing is, of course, family and friends and having time and energy to put into those things. And if you are constantly caught up in buying and working to afford that buying, then you're directly subtracting from your family and friends time which is going to take away your happiness. So think about happiness first. Mm. And uh, luckily that, that will tend to save you money rather than costing you money. Yeah, it sounds super logical to hear this, yet so many of us fail at this very basic tenet, you know, that we know money doesn't buy happiness and we know that happiness is important and underived from experiences and achievement and feeling that we're growing as human beings, but yet we fall prey to the dang shoes and the BMWs. And we want that higher kind of, you know, what seems to be a higher light level of living. What is it? Is it just pressure? Is it just uh, social pressure? It's, it's uh, being yeah, brainwashed? There's two, 
there's two bits of it that I think are causing this mass, mass fail on, on behalf of uh, millions of people. So number one is our old faux marketing because um, marketers, you know, people who want to sell products, they study human happiness a lot more than their target audience, which is us. So they know what we think makes us happy and they always package up their goods in a way that is makes it look like it's meeting those needs. Like there might be a young dude who wants to look impressive and be successful because that's what we feel we want. So they will sell the ridiculous Chevrolet oversized pickup truck as if it meets those needs, even though it doesn't. So that's, that's number one, marketing. The second thing is that evolutionary pressures, like basically what we think we want, isn't really what makes us happy. Like, for example, if you use a stereotype of the typical man, again, he wants women, you know, like he wants to be like successful and, you know, and, and the bottom line is your body is, uh, is trying to reproduce, but that's not really what makes you happy in a modern life is having the maximum number of babies, right? So your, your body and your evolution is working against what really is going to make you happy in a modern society. And to take it at a bit less of a controversial level, just think about food. Like you want sugar and dessert and like just the richest foods in unlimited quantities um, because your body thinks that there's going to be a permanent shortage of calories through your whole life. Now, if you just engage that want all the time, you're not going to be happy. You're just going to be constantly gaining more and more weight and get less and less happy as a result. So you're fighting evolution. Marketing mm -hmm. and evolution are the two flaws or the two foes of becoming wealthy. I hear that because I just wrote a book about when she makes more and, and trying to explain why it's sometimes uncomfortable for women and men to be in these kind of new normal economic roles of her making more than him and she being chief breadwinner. And I, a part of it has to do with, yes, as you say, evolutionary pressures. We, you know, and that's a, a force to be reckoned with. People like to think it's 2015 and we should be able to move on. But folks, you know, evolution is a very strong force. It's, you know, we've been primed for, you know, billions of years to think this way and conditioned this way. So this world that we live in now is very new and it's going to take time for us to get over that. Yeah. And everybody is born um, as an unprogrammed, you know, hairless ape again. And it takes <laughs> some programming. You know, every every new generation starts up from scratch. So you can either go the way that your your genes are guiding you or you can train yourself to overcome that. And mm -hmm. a lot of the best philosophies of the past are attempts to do that. Like Buddhism is actually a amazing um, rebellion against natural selection. In other words, it, it gets you to get get over your primal urges and, you know, think above them, which actually leads to a much happier life. Mm -hmm. And mustachianism, which is what I call my fake lifestyle and religion of the blog, is pretty similar to Buddhism and Stoicism combined. And, you know, the basics are understand that you're a flawed human and uh, figure out how to get over it. All right, let's talk about money memories. I would love for you to take us down memory lane and share with us one early on experience memory that taught you a lot about the way the world works when it comes to money and, and perhaps was the, the seed that planted the mustachianism. <laughs> that you, uh, that you teach and preach today? I would say that for me, it wasn't a experience that made a light bulb switch on. It was more a gradual discovery of these weird tendencies that I had as a kid. And, uh, and then later seeing how they benefited me. Like for example, as a kid, I liked to collect my little allowance and I would get $5 for cutting this giant lawn that my parents had. 
and uh, and I wouldn't spend that money. I would iron it, like I dipped it in this little like bit of hot water and then iron it and put it in a photo album. <laughs> so I had a collection of like the $20 bill page and you flip over and there's your $10 bills. And I was like, this is awesome. So I'd be this little kid, maybe 10 years old or less. And I would have like $170 in my 1984 photo album. And uh, I didn't even realize that was weird until looking back, people were like, oh, you actually did that? That's super weird. <laughs> so I just liked collecting things. Then with my Halloween candy, uh, I would, it would always last to the next Halloween. That's how much I would ration it, you know? So I was based a bit of a saver by nature and uh, never thought much of that until I got to maybe college age and I, you know, I'd saved for my, um, to pay for my university degree and all the schooling I'd been saving all through high school. Then I learned that other kids didn't do that and they just got money given to them like entirely or even worse, they borrowed money and they're like, yeah. I was like, how can you afford a car in school? Those things are like $10,000 or more. And they're like, well, I just put it on my loan. You know, I borrowed it and I have a student loan to pay for my textbooks. And it never even occurred to me you could do that stuff because luckily my parents were anti-debt as well. So if you multiply that behavior across some years, you graduate debt-free and then uh, I got a reasonably good job, nothing too special and saved that money. And then I put a down payment on a house and then I paid it off and invested this money. So I thought I was being normal, but it turns out just not everybody is normal. Who taught you that? Do you think it was just something you were born knowing yeah. and wanting to do? Did your parents teach you this? Well, they didn't sit me down and say like, look, son, this is what you have to do. But um, they did lead by example, like... For example, we always had less stuff than uh, my friends who had parents of similar incomes. We would have like the older TV or we didn't get the microwave, right? When everybody else got the first microwaves in the 80s and we lived in a, you know, a house that my parents had bought without a mortgage. I like started out pretty modest and just gradually upgraded the house. So I think I'm sure I picked up that kind of stuff, but also they gave me the gift of not handing me a lot of stuff, you know, like I always had to earn my money by doing dangerous and hard, sweaty work. And uh, other kids would just get a $20 a week allowance and they always had like the best remote control cars and mm -hmm. I didn't have that. So they just silently taught me that money is something that you earn and it's kind of hard to earn. So thus you don't want to waste it. How about failure? You've led a life of success, a led a life of financial abundance, and it's been very conscious. But there has to have been a time in your life where you experienced what you might categorize as a failure, a fail, or at least uh, somewhere you went wrong, and then maybe you learned a tremendous amount from it. Love to hear that story. Right. Well, I had a couple situations like that. So the first 20 odd years of my life was dominated by fear of failure. So I didn't fail too much because I didn't try enough stuff. Like I was always afraid to join the sports or maybe shy with people unless I already knew I would do well with this, with new groups of people. And uh, so a little bit too cautious. Uh, as I got older, I got out of that shell a little bit, fortunately, and got new jobs and got more advanced jobs and moved to a new country. You know, I was born in Canada moved to the U.S. at 24. So I got a little bit less chicken. And then that led to a really good failure, which was great learning as well. So I, after I, right after I retired, I started my idea of a retirement hobby, which is a, a house building company, a small one, building like these kind of expensive custom houses. And I did it just in time for the housing crash. And, you know, maybe I also misjudged the market 
making these kind of modern eco-friendly houses that nobody wanted. So it ended up up like uh, being a disaster. It lost about $200,000. It was like a business partner, awful situation and, you know, friendship completely ended and everything like that. So that was a big failure that stretched between 2005 and maybe 2009. And those are supposed to be the first years of my retirement. And I had this stress unnecessarily added. Like I could have just not done that company and had a much better time. But looking back, the lessons from that failure are just super golden. Like I learned a bunch of stuff. I learned about the first real hardship in my life. And this is all while my son was just a baby too. He had just been born. So uh, it kind of it uh, tempers you a lot and you realize how good things are now after you've been through some hard times. So I would say what I learned mostly is not to be afraid of failure. So now I'm a lot more like a honey badger and I'll just dive in and do (laughs) stuff and get stung by the bees. And it's no big deal. Like failing is totally fine. It's not like you're going to get strung up in a jail for 20 years and tortured. Like all that's going to happen is you lose some money. So Mm -hmm. basically numbers go down in your bank account and you can choose to make that torture you or you can choose to, have fun with it and, and just laugh at yourself. So I've, so I've had some failures since that have been quite fun. How did you recover from that? I mean, and, and to be honest, we all probably experienced a failure of some extent between 2005 and 2009, whether it was betting too much on a particular, betting the stock market would continue to go up, buying a house that was too much, too much money, um, over leveraging ourselves. So, um, just trying to maybe build some camaraderie here because yeah. <laughs> I think we all kind of experienced a week, a moment of weakness in 2005 or 2006. But what do you think was the well, two questions? Why do you think you experienced failure personally during that moment? And then how did you recover? Well, I experienced it just because of not knowing enough about the business cycle and I had overconfidence. And so I had a business that failed and, uh, I think that the only way to prevent that particular business from failing would be just not to start it in the same way. Like don't build custom houses when people are going to stop buying them. But, um, sorry, what was the other half of your question? How did you recover? I mean, you said you lost $200,000. That's true. Well, that's, you know, the way to recover from losing money is to earn some more money. So I just, uh, after that business had closed down and I was feeling better, I did a little bit of of carpentry on the side because I love doing that anyway. So I just basically let the neighbors and friends know that I was doing some professional carpentry work and, and that was really, really pleasant. So you could call that my second business and you could call it coming out of retirement. I didn't have to do that. I mean, there was still many hundreds of thousands left in our nest egg, but uh, I just chose to do that to psychologically feel like I was getting that money back. Mm -hmm. And uh, so earned more than that since then and had a really great time. And I learned about what type of business I like to run in the context of retirement. And the answer is I like to be a solo, like a one man show and be able to turn on and off the workflow whenever you want. Like, well, I'm going to take two months off. So I'm just not accepting jobs, no borrowed money, no list of demanding customers who are asking you for stuff after you've sold the product. And so I learned a lot about my idea of like perfect, um, you know, retirement lifestyle. So it's pretty easy. Anybody can go back and earn money if they screw something up after an early retirement. Right. And uh, since then, it turns out I didn't even have to do that because we've earned money in other ways like real estate and, um, and now this blog that I have also earns money. So I didn't have to worry at all. I mean, if I could go back 
and the construction company was crashing and I'd be like, Hey, Pete, this is future, future mustache. Uh, don't worry. Everything's going to be really, really great. That would be a nice gift to give to myself. But unfortunately I can't do that. What, what was the moment where you decided I'm going to start blogging? I mean, where were you? What was the idea? And then how, what happened when you pressed publish? <laughs> well, it was probably, it was about 2010. I was writing, uh, and some friends based, I think it was through Facebook. Friends were saying, look at this new Subaru I just bought and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and at the, the next post would be, I sure wish I could afford to stay home with my new baby. And then I thought, I thought, this is fun. I think I'm going to, um, start writing about how money, how I think money should be managed. So I just started writing them into like a, a document, like a word, Microsoft word or Google document thing. And I got about 20 posts written out over the period of a month. And uh, meanwhile, just having some drinks with friends, I joked about how it should become a blog and how it should be called Mr. Money Mustache. And, and my wife was part of these conversations too. And she set up, she just said, you, you really should start that blog. So she secretly went and registered the domain name and figured out the WordPress system and just put this web page up with nothing on it. She's like, look at that sucker. It's up and uh, <laughs> people are going to see an empty website unless you start posting some of that stuff that you, uh, you typed. So I thought, and you know, my cautious side was like, well, I don't really need more to do. Like I'm plenty busy in retirement. Do I need a blog? But she tricked me into starting and then it just took off because it was motivating. People are writing stuff back to you in comments mm -hmm. and you're saying, oh, well, I don't want to disappoint them. This is fun. And then it just kept getting more fun. And now it's four years into that. And how many, uh, how many readers do you have monthly on average? Um, well, it depends how you measure it. The, yeah. uh, the statistics page says about 700,000 oh different people looked at it in the most recent month. Um, but they're unusually dedicated readers. Like the number of page views that this blog has is something like 7 million page views a month. Oh my goodness. So it's kind of like a small city or medium sized city newspaper now, at least, but oh my I have gosh. much bigger plans. You know, I'm trying to like the, the secret goal of the blog is to save the human race from destroying itself due to overconsumption of its own habitat. So obviously you're going to need more than 700,000 monthly readers to, to do that. But that so is a long way to go. Well, it's a good, healthy start. And I'm hoping some of that magic will rub off on so many podcasts. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it depends what that. your mission is. Do you have a mission that is, you know, powerful and all encompassing? And if you don't, I suggest you think one up. Yeah. Well, it's simple. <laughs> I want to get about money and talking about money in a comfortable, safe way, you know, feeling like they can just share their stories. Because I feel like we're getting a lot of advice spewed at us from the institutions. And, you know, as you said, you know, the, 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 the world at large. And each of us has unique financial stories to share that are worth sharing. And there's a lot of value in that. And I want to be able to bring that to the forefront and just make money a more habitual conversation that we don't talk about money as it is, you know, it's still very taboo. It's still much uh, a scary topic, an uncomfortable topic, a rude topic. You don't talk about money. And this show is kind of uh, disrupting that, I'd like to think. Yeah. So maybe your mission could be to completely eliminate the rich world's hangups about money and make everybody wealthier in the process or something. I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing that down as you speak. Okay, I can make a better one for you if I have a couple minutes to think about it. <laughs> yes, yes, keep thinking. All right, and as you're thinking, I'll ask my next question. Uh, your so money moment, a time in your life, and it sounds like you know you have these moments a lot, but just a, a really 
striking moment, a financial moment that encompasses um, kind of a lot of who you are and uh, your goals. And it was a really, really excellent moment in your financial life, something that you strive for and you achieved. Um, well, I don't have one that fits exactly that category, but there are two mini examples that kind of illustrate it. So one was many years into retirement, like maybe five years, I went into a kind of a big project with a friend where we bought a foreclosed house together and fixed it up with like just nice, gritty, dirty work and went from this uninhabitable house to a pretty nice place and then rented it out. And uh, we re- recorded our work hours and I worked pretty hard. And then I'd after a couple months, you know, and I'd been billing at maybe $40 an hour for my carpentry, uh, but I was just adding it up for the end. And it turned out to be some number of dollars, you know, like maybe $5,000 of work that I did. And then during that same period, I looked at my regular passive income that came from owning my own rental houses and stock dividends and stuff like that. And it was more, it was like $7,000. And I thought, wow, my money is working harder than I can, even though I remember all this brutal stuff, you know, like shoveling shingles off the roof and grinding up old iron pipes in the basement. Um, the money outperformed me. So that was kind of neat because I already knew that was the fundamental of what it means to retire. But until I really put the uh, like a grisly face on it, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. So that was fun. And then the other part that is um, that felt so money to me is that I started um, – feeling wealthy and, and surplus enough to give away money for, you know, for various charitable stuff. And there was this one time I was in, um, in Ecuador on a trip that's related to the blog. And I had gone there to be basically a host and speaker for kind of a retreat. And normally you would get paid to do that a few thousand dollars as well as a free trip. But I had told the organizer who was very charitably inclined, this woman, uh, I was like, well, why don't you just keep that speaker's fee and, um, and just use it for whatever charity stuff you're already doing. So she used it to rebuild this house for a family like that had been their family in, in her neighborhood had had their house destroyed by an earthquake and it was a surprise. So I showed up for the retreat, which I already thought was pretty posh to get to go on this thing. And then suddenly there's this family with all these little kids like coming up and hugging me and the oh, other speakers who had also donated in their, in their new house. She just drove us there without telling us. <laughs> and, um, and the other speakers of course had decided to do the same donation so these people thought that I was, that we were so generous and like, thank you for rebuilding our house, senor, and all this wonderful stuff. And we're all crying. And then I realized that, holy, holy man, this is like this uh, money is so much more useful mm-hmm. when you have a surplus of it. And then you can, what seems like a tiny gesture to you can make a giant difference in other people's lives. And it doesn't have to just be plain old charity. I mean, whether you're investing in stuff that's even going to give returns for you, um, a surplus of money is a really powerful thing. And I never really thought of that before retiring. I just thought I need money for myself. Mm-hmm. But later when I realized how powerful a surplus can be, that got me more excited about, you know, what to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. So surplus can change lives, yours and others. Yeah. And the more you get of uh, money and the skills that you develop as you earn this money, it becomes easier and easier to earn more money. So, um, so that opens up the second half of your life, like the post the after you need to work for a living, suddenly you have all these extra decades where you can still um, use all these skills for fun and for good. And, and it's even more funny than it's sorry. It's even more fun than working for yourself. Wow. Are you in touch with that family still that you helped rebuild their house? Any, uh, 
Any updates? Well, I went back to Ecuador the next year and they were still there living in that. But um, we've just expanded the operation a little bit. And we have a couple other projects in that same area of Ecuador that are that are kind of fun. And they're based on the same thing, you know, like generating small amounts of money to help send kids to college or whatever, um, fix up things in the village. Uh, it's very hands-on, you know, it's not the most efficient kind of charity. Like the most efficient is more of what the Gates Foundation is doing. Right. But if you're just a beginner and you like the the fun thing of seeing real people and helping them and, you know, and I, I like the same stuff in, in the U.S. and Canada where I'm from too, but it's just, um, there's no wrong way to do it, I guess. I think it makes no. people feel yeah. good however however they go about it. Totally. Absolutely. Well, that's a super story. I love that. We're almost done here, but before we go, I want to talk about rituals, habits. We've all got them, good and bad, but for you, what would be one important financial habit that you participate in that's important to you that helps keep your money safe and growing? The growing part of my money is is pretty simple. I just like the idea of keeping all money invested. So if I run into a surplus sometime, I, I don't think of something to buy with it. I just think, okay, I better get rid of this money and put it to work again. So I sweep it out of the bank account and into regular index funds, you know, my long-term simple plain investments. So the habit of thinking of money as something uh, to invest rather than to save is generally, sorry, to invest rather than to spend is a good habit. Mm -hmm. And then on the personal level, I have the habit of, of trying to use my time as well in the same way that I use money. So I use, I think of time as an opportunity to do something better. I'm like, Oh good. I have two hours now. How can I use that uh, to the best advantage? So then I'll kind of look at a list of my priorities. And instead of just sitting down and scrolling through Twitter, I'll look and I'll see Mm -hmm. my list says, um, you've been meaning to go for a hike or you've been meaning to get some extra workouts in or finish this useful book. So think of time as like a real gold mine, especially if you're at the point before becoming a parent, because after oh, yeah. I became a parent, I realized that suddenly I don't have much free time and it is, is great to put your free time to use. So if you're younger and you don't even have kids yet, you've got all this free time, you should put it to work, you know, while you got it to earn a ton of money better yourself in many ways, get in great shape, prepare for this giant challenge. If you're going to later have children or other big responsibilities and your time will be sucked away, Mm -hmm. it's good to prepare for that by building yourself up and building some wealth right now. I preach that too. Think of your twenties as your prime earning and investing years in a way, you know, thinking and, and making use of your time so efficiently. I mean, you still have that college body clock ticking inside of you, letting you stay up until three o'clock in the morning and think clearly at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I can't your brain do that still anymore. works. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty much I'm I'm over it's over for me at like nine thirty at night, you know. The most I can do is do some dishes at that point. Uh, maybe a couple tweets, but I can't be you know, planning my, my next, you know, big idea at that, at that hour. I need the daytime to think clearly. And, uh, now with a child, it's, you realize just how valuable every 60 seconds are. Yeah, I think that's true. So use it while you got it and also work to make it, to preserve it as well. You know, like Mm -hmm. you can get a lot more out of yourself by staying healthy and get a couple more decades out of, of, of physical vitality than, than you'd normally get if you don't think about that. James Altucher, one of my guests on the show, uh, his 
episode was fantastic. Everyone check it out. But he said something really riveting, which is that money is just a byproduct of living a healthy life. And that's something that I will take with me to the grave. Hopefully not for many, 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 many years to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. As long as you interpret healthy life in a broad enough sense, you know, Mm -hmm. like using your mind for its best purpose and stuff. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There's plenty of healthy people that are are broke, you know, like CrossFit junkies who have no right. money but great Don't, bodies. <laughs> this isn't like going to the gym for eight hours a day, but really like exactly. Uh, yeah. Flexing meeting the idea people. muscle, reading, meeting people. Right. Yeah. Um, Sounds great to me. That's a good philosophy. And then last but not least, we have a few sentences that I'd like you to finish. Really fast, round robin. If I won the lottery tomorrow, say $100 million, I would... Start thinking about how to become a better philanthropist, I guess. Because that's a big enough level of money that you got some responsibility and uh, you're going to feel pretty dumb if you just let it sit around forever. Right, right, right. (laughs) It's like, why... Exactly. You got to have a plan for all the the money that you're accumulating. And it's exciting to see it grow in the bank, but you want to be doing things with it too. That's going to change lives. And I've realized I have no possible use for more spending money, even though people say I live this supposedly bare bones life, but I just can't think of how to spend any more. So, um, so more money has to be put to efficient use in some other way than, than just on my own pampered ass. (laughs) The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is good tools. I would say whether they're like not just necessarily carpentry or woodworking or construction tools, which I do like, but good tools for life. So a good office in which I can work, which is in my house. That's where I'm standing now. Or good bikes, which is the way I used to get around. Uh, Nothing has to be fancy or over the top, but I like stuff to be functional and not mess with it too much. I just want it to do its job. And that does cause me to spend more money on some things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you want quality. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot on, I know you're not a big spender, but if there's something that you just really spend on because it makes you feel good and it's fun and, you know, you got to live a little. I got an answer for that. That's probably food. (laughs) In recent years, we've dropped the frugality aspect of our food and uh, we we just kind of get fancier stuff, you know, like the tiny little kinds of imported cheese from that special tray in the gourmet grocery store or like... You know, if you're having friends over, you no longer just get a bunch of pizza. We might actually get fancy food to give them like sushi or some other kind of things like that. So I would say food and entertaining related stuff has mm-hmm. gone up in the in the presence of, of excess money. Well, when you're getting 7 million page views, I think you can get some sushi. <laughs> if only those page views would translate directly to sushi, like they yeah. would just spit out of my computer screen, then we would really be set. Someday. When, uh, okay, one thing I wish I had known about money growing up, and it sounds like you knew plenty about money growing up. You were framing it and putting it in albums, but uh, (laughs) what would be one thing that you wish you had known? Well, there's not too much I regret in the the money sense. Um, maybe Maybe one thing I would say is I wish I had known that money is quickly goes from shortage to surplus. So you can, you can relax about it when you're younger. Like you should still do smart stuff, but you should be aware that you are building a really happy, powerful surplus that is going to change the rest of your life. So you're not just building the ability to pay your rent or get by. You're actually on a road that leads to a much more exciting place than that. So freedom and monetary 
you know, real success is, is far bigger than just buying less stuff. It's a bigger feeling than that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when you're young, it's really, it can be really hard to visualize and understand that because your life really does comprise so much of your immediate needs, you know, having to pay rent, paying for food, paying for gas. And so it's hard. It's easy, I guess I should say, to not see the bigger picture. Yeah, that's true. And uh, some role models in this area might help people. And the problem is most of the role models who became wealthy through just being reasonable with money, they're pretty quiet. They don't usually show up on TV. And we just get the role models of people who came into a big um, pile of money, like a sports figure or an actor or a business uh, entrepreneur. And uh, that's kind of not an accurate picture. That's just a tiny percentage of the wealthy people. Most of the wealthy people got there by just plain old earning reasonable salary and spending less than mm-hmm. they earned, like a lot less than they earned. And it gets you to the same place. And so it's good to understand both ways to do it. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because, and you've already talked a little bit about your, your charitable ventures in Ecuador. Where else do you like to be charitable? Um, so far, it's like a, a work in progress because this is kind of a new idea to me. But as an engineer, I think... Um, I'm most interested in stuff that is really efficient, like when you do the research, rather than that's like gratifying personally. So um, I really like, for example, what the Gates Foundation does is they study world data, figure out how to affect the biggest number of people's lives and also change the course of humanity in the best way. Like, for example, allow us to have more babies that live in poor countries so that people choose to have fewer babies. So it's quite counterintuitive, but he's smart enough to figure this out so that these rich countries will stop, or sorry, the poor countries can become more stable. The whole human race can be like happier and able to deal with environmental problems by virtue of getting out of poverty and desperation. So it's, it's really like a long-term way of thinking. And I really admire the way that the Gates Foundation does that. They take this, you know, like instead of what can I do today, they think, what can I do now that's going to make the biggest difference when we need it, which is like over the next 100 years. Mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, complicated, boring, nerdy stuff is, is my ultimate idea of, uh, of philanthropy. That's awesome. And I, is it true Bill Gates is not leaving his estate to his kids? Well, not, the, not most of it. I'm mm-hmm. sure he's leaving plenty, Some. just like, yeah, like a few million dollars each or whatever. But the billions of dollars, the many, many billions of dollars between those two guys and a bunch of others who have joined them, are kind of like, it's almost a whole different country in itself of wealth, but it's it's just dedicated to doing this data-based improvement of the world. And I think that's good. You know, what, what are your kids going to do with billions of dollars unless they're as interested in philanthropy as you? Right. Yes. And that isn't always the case. And finally, I'm so money because... I don't have an answer. Oh, actually, no, I do have an answer. My answer is because money is my middle name as Mr. Money Mustache. (laughs) So that's automatically qualifies me as so money, right? It does. It does. And I would say also, you know, you joke a little bit about having a cult following, but certainly you are a leader uh, in this space as people search for icons and leaders and 
mentors and advisors to help them live a more meaningful life when it comes to money. Not necessarily a richer or more fabulous life, but you know, just a a life where their money is going towards what's important and allowing them to live not just a life, but a lifestyle. And that's something to, uh, to commend you for. And so thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Tell us where we can read more about what you're up to and follow you online. Well, that's pretty easy. You just look for Mr. Money Mustache. You can't miss him if you're, <laughs> if you type that into any part of your computer. <laughs> okay. It'll pop up. Thanks <laughs> so much again. And uh, again, really appreciate you having me on the show. Have a great year. Thanks. You too, Farnoosh. So was I right? A smile on your face. If you'd like to learn more about Mr. Money Mustache, check out his website, which is spelled just like it sounds, MrMoneyMustache.com. He's also on Twitter at Mr. Money Mustache. And check out SoMoneyPodcast.com, where there you can find all the links to find him, but also really cool, the entire transcript for this interview, as well as the comments section. Make a shout out. Let us know what you thought of the interview. And there you can click on Ask Farnoosh and boom, send me your question about whatever's on your mind. And I know there's got to be something. Saturdays and Sundays, I dedicate the show to responding to listeners' questions, to your questions. So please take advantage of that tool. Thanks for joining me, guys. In the meantime, hope your day is so money. Money.